welcome to the Healthcare IT Today interview series. We feel lucky to be able to talk to so many smart, passionate, and knowledgeable people in healthcare. Now, we're taking our favorite interviews and sharing them with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy perspectives on the world of health IT. Hey everyone, I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today. We're excited to bring you another in our series of interviews with top leaders in health IT. And we're here in the beautiful Israel with our special guest, Dr. Giddy Stein. He's co-founder and CEO of MetaWare. Welcome, Giddy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited for today's discussion. Uh, before we dive in, uh, tell us about yourself and MetaWare. Sure. So I started off as a software engineer many years ago. Uh, was VPRD co-founder of several failing startups in the early 90s. And after a few of those, I vowed never to do startups again <laughs> and decided to be a doctor. I was the oldest medical student in Tel Aviv University, uh, already with wife and kids, uh, graduated, specialized in internal medicine, having executive roles in one of Israel's larger hospitals. In parallel to that, I did a PhD in computational biology, taking computer science and medicine combining them uh, uh, together, uh, assistant, assistant professor in Tel Aviv University, and you know, life was good. I never <laughs> thought I would do anything but that. Uh -huh. But that changed a few years back when here in Israel a nine-year-old boy died simply wow. because his primary care physician clicked on the wrong entry in the Puda menu list and gave him the wrong drug by mistake. You know, it, it wasn't bad judgment on part mm -hmm. of that physician, it was a typo. And the ease by which we can kill someone with a typo was unnerving to me as a, as a practitioner, as a parent. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought we should do something about that. Uh -huh. So tell us, uh, how did MetaWare go to you know, really address that problem? So first of all, we tried to look at this problem from 30,000 feet. Mm -hmm. and, and when you even take the, the story of that child, you understand that although it was a failure of a single physician mm -hmm. to prescribe the right medication, there were so many stations along the way from the moment the clinician clicked on the wrong entry and the patient actually received the drug, that all the relevant information to understand that this was the wrong drug for the wrong patient was available in many of these stations. Wow. And the fact that it slipped through the cracks for me was a sign that it, although it was a failure of individual, it really represented a systematic failure. And a systematic failure requires a systematic solution. And this is where we saw what, what we can do. And the way that we approach the problem is really trying to learn prescribing habits based on electronic medical records data and claims data. And from these identify outlier situations throughout the continuum of care that may uh, be a sign of a medication-related risk that is evolving, either at the prescribing event, but also post-prescribing, post-dispensing, evolving adverse drug events, etc., etc. Yeah, and that's pretty compelling to think the data was in the EHR <laughs> or some other source that knew that this was a bad idea, <laughs> and yet it didn't stop them from doing it, which is that, that's, that's pretty compelling to think about. And it's interesting, you do it, so you do it at the point of prescribing, but also after the fact as well. Tell, talk about how that works. So the, the system feeds on, on clinical data from EMRs, from devices, mm -hmm. from, from claims. And every new data input is regarded as a new event. Hmm. And every time we have a new event, we assess the clinical relevance 
or the risk associated with each of the active drugs. So for example, if a drug that was prescribed yesterday where everything was okay, but two days later a new lab test or vital signs shows some kind of abnormalities which render that active medication dangerous for that patient, we're able to catch that and surface this back to the clinician. Uh, and in fact, more than 60% of the drugs that we generate are post-prescribing, post-dispensing, mm. things that are completely missed by the current solutions that we have today. And the, the idea that, that we take the data, the clinical data of the client, to personalize the alerts that we generate to these clinicians enables us to reduce the number of alerts by more than 90% and enhance their clinical relevance and therefore basically eliminate alert fatigue so clinicians actually pay attention to what we, what we find. And we have data to prove it. In several clinical studies, there are more than 40% of the alerts that we generate cause an immediate change in clinician practice with an alert burden of significantly less than 2% of the medical orders, which is really un, un, uh, unprecedented. Well, let, let's dive into that because obviously there's lots of clinical decision support systems out there and every doctor has experiences of, with alert, alert fatigue and often ignore the notifications because uh, they feel like they know better, whatever it might be, right? And, and they're getting alerted for lots of drug-to-drug -drug interactions, drug-to-allergy interactions that maybe medically they should ignore. And so, you know, talk about, you know, what are some of the keys to uh, to reducing it by 90%? That, that's, that's a significant number, right? So, if you look at the currently available drug databases, <clears throat> that are deployed in most U.S. hospitals and, mm -hmm. and worldwide, they're usually composed of hundreds of thousands of rules. Mm -hmm. And each of these rules was manually curated based on, be on best clinical evidence. So the question yeah. is, if, if, this is, if this is so good, why doesn't it work? Why so many alerts are ignored? Yeah. And then when you dive into the details, you understand that although the rule is, is, clinically, uh, uh, is clinically appropriate, it's not necessarily relevant to this individual patient in this specific time. And let me give you two examples. Mm -hmm. So let's say you know, the, most, uh, the most common uh, alerts are regarding drug-to-drug -drug, drug -drug interactions, which are a nuisance to most clinicians. Mm -hmm. So if there's a drug-to-drug -drug interaction that says these two drugs together put the patient at risk of, I don't know, high potassium, which mm -hmm. is dangerous, you should monitor potassium. This is great, but if I have a recent potassium level from 30 seconds ago, then this alert is basically not really relevant for this patient right now. If there's no available uh, potassium level or the potassium level was high, then definitely the alert should be generated. But in general, in most cases, the potassium level will be okay. So mm -hmm. I would not need to provide an alert at this specific time. I may you know, have a, a flag put three, five days later, so do I have an updated potassium <laughs> And if you didn't, check it again. Uh -huh. And then by spreading it over time, again, the, most cases, clinicians would take the right potassium level at the right time. So again, we won't alert when it's not relevant, reducing the alert burden by 90%. Wow. So that's example number one. Second example would be aspirin and clopidogrel, two drugs that are used as blood thinners, very, very commonly. There's a fixed interaction that says that they increase the risk of bleeding, which is true. But 99.9% .9 of patients receiving these two drugs 
are doing it per guidelines because they just have a heart attack or a stroke or a stent put into, into the coronary arteries. And it's mandatory for them to receive these two medications together. And then the question is, can we identify the patients that need to get these two drugs together or are likely to receive these two drugs together and exclude them from the, from the alert uh -huh. and provide the alert only on the patients who are receiving them really by mistake with no indication and they are really at the risk of bleeding. And again, by doing so, we're reducing the number of alerts by more than 80-90% and enhancing their clinical relevance. And by using a data-driven approach, we can continuously test this hypothesis and make sure that the alert burden is really very, very low and the response rate is high. And when we see some kind of change, we immediately dive in to see what did we do wrong and fix it. Mm -hmm. And by thus ensuring a continuous uh, performance of the system along the way. Yeah. It's interesting. This kind of reminds me, which I don't know if in Israel you have this problem. I don't think you do. But in the U.S., when there's a drug advertisement, at the end, they basically list 15 ways that you're going to die if you use the drug. <laughs> but buy it anyway. Yeah, but buy it anyway, right? And that's kind of what you're describing. It sounds like, right, is these drug-to-drug -drug interactions are, are risks, you know, because of liability or, or, or something that was in the study that obviously the doctor's going to ignore because there's a, a, a you know, it's a small risk and, and the risk of not taking the drug is worse. And so is, is that kind of similar? It is similar, and, and basically we are identifying these individuals that really are at risk of this adverse drug event, although very rare, and providing the alerts only to them. And for patients that in which we have enough data to support it, it's probably not the case, and probably the risk is very low, then for them we will not provide the alert. And this is the big change. Interesting. Now, when we talk about clinicians, Definitely, you know, it's, it's a nuisance and a lot burden, everything. But it's by a magnitude more problematic when you're talking about the pharmacies, hmm. especially the inpatient pharmacy and moreover the long-term care pharmacy, which is a booming industry in the U.S. A pharmacist spends almost 40% of his time in an inpatient hospital for what is called order verification. Check the box. Is this okay? Is this okay? Is yeah. this okay? It's mandatory per regulations. In long-term care uh, pharmacies, it's a three-shift, 24-hour operation. Mm -hmm. Each pharmacist reviews about 800 prescriptions in an eight-hour shift. And it's impossible to, to make sure that all these scripts are accurate because, you know, one minute per script doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's burnout. There's, there's <laughs> burnout, but there's also work efficiency. Because uh -huh. if we can use the same tools that we have today provide for the provider, use at the pharmacy to drive efficiency, and instead of 800 prescriptions, they will be able to review 1,200 prescriptions or even more, right. and suddenly the same number of pharmacies can deal with much more clients, and hence we reduce the cost or increase the revenue. Hmm. And once we touch on that, then suddenly our solution becomes much more interesting. Mm -hmm. We're not only saving lives, but we're saving uh, money. Yeah, so you do more prescriptions, more efficiently and safer. <laughs> that's, a, exactly. that's a good recipe. So talk about the integration that you have uh, you know, with the EHR, you know, in the pharmacy, it could be with the EHR, or maybe a, a pharmacy system. H how does that work? How do you integrate? Is it within the workflow? Is it separate? You know, talk about that. 
So it depends on the use case. So mm -hmm. with uh, EMRs, uh, we are usually integrated within the workflow, mm -hmm. uh, both at the pharmacy and both at the uh, provider level. Um, we have, for example, a strategic partnership with Baxter Healthcare in which okay. we are integrated not with the EMR, but we are embedded inside their smart infusion pumps, mm. which is a completely different wow. type of, of solution, taking yeah. the same core technologies that identify clinical outliers and embed them inside a, a medical device. Hmm. And this partnership is, is just you know, the first of a kind that shows that we are not a, a simply a decision support a, a tool, but basically a safety engine that can be embedded in, in major players to provide them with, make their data smarter mm -hmm. and provide them with a, a marketing differential vis-a-vis -vis their competitors or market differential mm. with their competitors when they're going on to, to tenders. Yeah, are you still pulling data from the EHR to, to make that decision on the med device or is all the data coming from the med device? We can do both. We can take data from the EHR, but we can take only pump data and provide real value. Wow. We already had a joint publication uh, with Baxter on results of almost 4 million infusion last wow. year that showed that we can actually do it purely on, on uh, infusion data. Impressive. Wow, it's really interesting and it's such a big problem, right? Uh, the, the, the alert fatigue, uh, I wrote an article that the doctors are sick of alert fatigue in so many different directions and they love alerts until they don't. <laughs> And then the reality is that it's because, you know, if you don't refine it, then, you know, we all love alerts on our phone when they give us something of value. And I think the same is true for doctors. So thanks for sharing. Now, where can people go to learn more about MetaWare? www.metaware.com, obviously. Easy enough. Yep. Well, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Giddy. This was really interesting and insightful. And thanks, everyone, for watching and listening. If you want to find more great healthcare IT content like this, be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com or search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcasting application. Thanks, Giddy. Thanks for having me.